0: A wiry middle aged man with a thin face and cold grey eyes looks down from the garden of the convent of Cerro do Pilar. Below him is the wide Douro River, the only bridge across it now a shattered mess, deliberately destroyed by the retreating French. Enemy cavalry patrols can be seen hovering downstream, and blue coated infantry scout the bank close to the sprawling Portuguese city of Oporto. They seem relaxed, unconcerned by the advance of the Redcoats to the suburb of Villa Nova, just opposite them. It's the morning of the 12th of May 1809. The sun has begun to burn off the early morning fog. The man, a British Lieutenant General, pans his telescope to the right. The steep, rocky banks along the east of the city appear to be undefended. If only the General had boats to ferry his men across and take the French under Marshal Soult by surprise. As he lowers his telescope, another man, a colonel, hurries over to him. One boat has been brought up to the crossing place, he whispers in his ear, and it's concealed by the wall of the orchard. The general nearly smiles, but manages to keep his emotions in check. To cross now with limited boats is a risky plan, but if he doesn't act decisively then his troops could be stuck on the south side of the river for some time. He nods decisively to the colonel. Well. Let the men cross. This is a moment that will change the dynamic of the war in the peninsula. Sir Arthur Wellesley, who you'll remember from episodes one and two, the victor of Raleesa and Vimero, is back in Portugal. His reputation finally recovered after his part in the convention of Sintra. Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast. It's an exciting episode today, something I've been looking forward to. The man who's probably Britain's greatest ever general is back to grace our story with his brilliance. If you recall, in the first two episodes, Sir Arthur Wellesley led the Redcoats to victory against Junot's army of occupation, smashing them at those decisive battles at Vimera and Rasa. He was then immediately superseded by two less capable commanders, Generals Bourard and Dalrymple, who've allowed the French to escape and agreed to an armistice that favored the enemy. It all became very messy and the three generals were recalled home to face a board of inquiry. If you haven't listened to those earlier episodes, then I would highly recommend doing so. It's worth going back and catch up so you kind of know where we are now with the story. It's also worth listening to last month's episode where Josh Proven and I discussed Sir Arthur Wellesley's or the Duke of Wellington as he was to become his early life, his school days and his time in India, where he commanded the British and Sepoy troops at the Brutal Battle of Versailles. So before we kick off today's short episode, I wanted to tell you how you could help to support the show. I mean, the main thing you can do is to sign up for my mailing list and receive your free ebook all about the Martini-Henry rifle. Just visit redcoathistory.com newsletter. The book you'll receive is actually a transcript of my interview with the fantastic Rob from the British Muzzle Loaders YouTube channel, which if you don't follow, you should. I'll also keep you up to date via the mailing list with new episodes of the podcast, videos, and blog posts, all about British military history. Anyway, guys, that's enough of all that. Let's get cracking with our story for today. Roll up your greatcoat, <laughs> kiss the Portuguese beauty on your arm goodbye, pick up your weapon, as today we march to glory and battle with our old enemy, the Gauls of Bonaparte's France. After the Battle of Coruna, the death of Sir John Moore, and the embarkation of the British army in Spain in January 1809, the politicians in Britain and the generals were unsure how to proceed in the peninsula. The big question was, could Portugal be defended against the French, or should it now simply be abandoned? When General Moore had been asked this question in November 1808 by Lord Castlereagh, who was Secretary of State for War, he had been adamant that it could not be defended. Sir Arthur Wellesley, on the other hand, had answered the same question this way. He said, I have always been of the opinion that Portugal might be defended, whatever might be the result of the contest in Spain and that in the meantime, measures adopted for the defence of Portugal would be highly useful to the Spaniards in their contest with the French. My notion was that the Portuguese military establishment ought to be revived, and that in addition to those troops His Majesty ought to employ about 20,000 British troops, including about 4,000 cavalry. My opinion was that even if Spain should have been conquered, the French would not be able to overrun Portugal with a smaller force than 100,000 men. His confidence won Castlereagh over, and on the 2nd of April, Wellesley was officially appointed as Commander in Chief of the British forces in Portugal, superseding Craddock, who had proved to be an unenterprising commander during his short time in charge. In fact, General Craddock had done very little except prepare his troops to abandon the country, which seemed to be his main priority in the event of a major French invasion. Castlereagh's letter of service to Wellesley made it clear what his priorities were. It said, To prepare and equip the British army for the field, you will in the next place direct your utmost exertions to bringing forward the Portuguese army and rendering it capable of cooperating with His Majesty's troops. The defense of Portugal you will consider as the first and immediate object of your attention. But as the security of Portugal can only be effectively provided for, in connection with the defense of the peninsula in the larger sense, His Majesty, from this account, leaves it to your judgment to decide when your army shall be advanced on the frontier of Portugal, how your efforts can best be combined with the Spaniards, as well as the Portuguese troops, in support of the common cause. On the 22nd of April, 1809, Lieutenant General Sir Arthur Wellesley finally landed back in Lisbon, the city on the Tagus through which tens of thousands of British troops were to arrive over the next few years. It was a place loved and hated in equal measure. One soldier, an officer of the Royal Engineers, described the place like this. The streets of Lisbon are generally good and many of them fine. There are no mean houses and the greater part are handsome and uniform in height and size. There are but few squares and those are not remarkable. The streets are not only, even in this burning weather, covered with dry filth and squalid rags but are lined with naked beggars and disgusting cripples who bear and often augment their deformities and afflictions to arouse the dormant compassion of the rich. But, however laughable, it is really dreadful to walk in these streets by night, (laughs) for your foot slides about in soft things, and the whizzing overhead and the splash, splash, splash that assails your ears make you expect to be covered with refuse. (laughs) Sounds quite delightful, doesn't it? Anyway, back to our story. I just thought it'd be an interesting aside to tell you what Lisbon was like at that time. Almost immediately upon arriving, Wellesley grasped the strategic situation and drew up plans for a swift march north to tackle Marshal Soult's Second Corps and expel the French from Portugal once more, before then returning south to confront Victor's Corps. He wrote, I intend to move upon Soult as soon as I can make some arrangement on which I can depend for the defence of the Tagus, to impede or delay Victor's progress in case he should come on while I am absent. Sir Salt, who you'll recall had led the exhausting pursuit of Sir John Moore through northern Spain, had subsequently re-invaded northern Portugal with his battered and overstretched corps. That had been in March, but since reaching the city of Oporto, the French had become bogged down, hemmed in by brutal Portuguese partisans. Their supply lines were cut and they had little knowledge of what was happening in the rest of the peninsula. This was actually to be the case for French troops throughout much of the war. The march of the Second Corps, wrote one of Sult's officers, may be compared to the progress of a ship on the high seas. She cleaves the waves, but they close behind her, and in a few moments all trace of her passage has disappeared. Despite numbering over 20,000 men and occupying Portugal's most, most fertile province, Sult and his corps seemed ripe for the picking. Victor's Corps was a little bit further south, across the border in Spain, hence Wellesley felt he could, he could put them off till a little bit later. Wellesley's force was now a strong one, in numbers at least. He had at his disposal 25,000 British and 16,000 Portuguese troops. But the majority of these were untested. Only five of his British infantry battalions had been at Vimero, and the majority of the remainder were weak second battalions, which in theory were not meant to serve abroad and were composed mainly of recent volunteers from the militia – I guess the militia would be like the territorial army of old. Wellesley was also short of cavalry. He had just four full regiments and elements of two more. The Portuguese army was in an even worse position. Most of their units were filled with half-trained raw recruits. But over the previous six weeks their new commander-in-chief, General William Beresford, had begun to train them hard and they were gaining in confidence. In order to stiffen them, British officers were also drafted into their regiments. These men being induced to exchange by an automatic step up in rank, you know, captains became majors and so on. Even British NCOs were temporarily seconded to help the Portuguese regiments to learn British drill and better integrate them within British brigades. Wellesley knew that he had no choice but to split his force. His main target was a porto, but there was a likelihood that if he left Lisbon undefended, then Marshal Victor could launch a swift attack from Spain over the border, capture the port, and leave the Allied armies stranded. Therefore, 12,000 men were left under the command of Major General Mackenzie. Another 6,000 troops were split to form a flanking force under General Beresford. Their mission was to cross the Douro near Lamego and intercept Salts' line of retreat if he was to pull back from Oporto. On the 2nd of May Wellesley gathered his main force at Coimbra on the Mondego River, halfway between Lisbon and Aporto. He had around 18,000 men by the time they gathered, consisting of seven brigades of infantry, six British and one of the King's German Legion. Just as a small aside, the KGL, as it was known, was essentially the Hanoverian army in exile that owed its allegiance to King George III of, King George III of Great Britain, I'd like to devote a whole episode to these guys later in the season. So if any of you are experts or know someone who I should interview, let me know. Four battalion of Portuguese infantry were also attached to the British brigades. This was an innovation that Wellesley rightly believed would greatly enhance the fighting effectiveness of these Portuguese units. A company of riflemen from the 5th 60th was also attached to each brigade. The 5th 60th were another fascinating unit They were mainly made up of Germans, and I'll be discussing them in a later episode with the author Rob Griffith, who is incredibly knowledgeable and has recently published a book on the unit. There were also four cavalry regiments, the 14th, 16th and 20th Light Dragoons, and the 3rd Light Dragoons of the King's German Legion. Captain William Tomkinson was a young officer with the 16th Light Dragoons, and he later recalled, Our entrance into Coimbra was hailed by the inhabitants as a happy event in the hopes we might protect them from the French, and showers of flowers were poured down from the windows as we entered the town. His regiment's excitement quickly wore off as they were pushed north on the 9th of May and spent their first night bivouacking in a field. He said, This was an event much thought of, and every officer was employed in bringing into use the various inventions recommended in England for such occasions, many of which were found useless. You can almost imagine it, can't you? It's like today's modern camper buying all the mod cons, getting out into the field and realize that actually they are a load of old rubbish. On May the 11th, the advancing British force had its first major skirmish at the village of Griho, Lieutenant Leslie of the 29th, Charles Leslie, who we last met at the Battle of Relisa, recalled, the enemy, about 5,000 men, were posted in position on the heights above the village of Griho. The woods in the low ground and the village were occupied by their light troops, all under General Marmont, who had been pushing on for a porto on his learning that the British were advancing. We halted on a height on the side of the Vale, directly opposite to them the 29th Regiment being formed in line, the 16th Portuguese on our left, and the cavalry and artillery on the right. On the main road, all ready to move on to the attack, our light troops, consisting of the light company of the 29th Regiment, with the detachments of the 43rd and 52nd Regiments, all under the command of Major Way of the 29th, dashed on and were soon warmly engaged with the enemy in the woods below. During this, we were ordered to lie down. Sir Arthur Wellesley and his staff were immediately in the rear of our colours. The enemy's shot was passing through and over as pretty thick. One passed between myself and an officer who was in the act of handing me a cup of wine, nearly dashing it from his hand, and it fell just in front of Sir Arthur's horse. Oh, they know how to fight in those days, didn't they? Wine in the middle of the battle. The skirmishing still continuing with great obstinacy and the enemy not seeming inclined to give way, Sir Arthur Wellesley said, If they don't move soon, I must let the old 29th loose upon them. He ordered the 16th Portuguese under Colonel John Millie Doyle to move down through the wood so as to gain and turn the enemy's right, while the column of the German legion threatened their left. This had the desired effect. The light troops of the King's German Legion then succeeded in turning the left flank of the French line, forcing it to retire. They fell back into a maze of narrow lanes and thick woods. General Charles Stuart, Wellesley's adjutant general and a typical sort of dashing cavalry commander, then ordered the Dragoons to attack. It was terrible country for a cavalry charge, but Stuart was a thruster who believed that his units could achieve anything. Tomkinson recounts what happened next. We galloped about 100 yards down the road and then turned in the enclosures to the right through a gateway in a stone wall sufficiently wide for one horse only. I was nearly off. My horse turned so suddenly. On getting into the enclosure, we rode at a gallop up to the enemy who, strange to state, ran away. They were scattered all over the field and I was in the act of firing my pistol at the head of a French infantryman when my arm dropped, without any power on my part to raise it. The next thing I recollect was my horse galloping in an ungovernable manner amongst the body of infantry, with both my hands hanging down, though I do not re- recollect being shot in the left arm. In this state, one of their bayonets was stuck into him, he means his horse, and he fortunately turned short round, and I had, in addition, the good luck to keep my seat on him. He went full gallop to the rear and on coming to a fence of an enclosure, he selected a low place in it under a vine tree, knocked my head into it when I fell off him. Tomkinson survived this debacle of a cavalry charge. They'd been lucky that the French were already in massive disorder and ready to retreat as it was. If the French infantry had made a more determined stand, they could have held their position for much longer and inflicted devastating casualties on the horsemen. The shaken French continued to stream north towards a During that night, the last of the French troops crossed over the bridge from Villanova and it was then blown up. Soult now believed that his position was completely secure. He was planning to retire, but believed that he would have plenty of time to do so. But Soult had underestimated his opponent, Wellesley. He was determined to cross as quickly as possible. He immediately sent his intelligence officers to scour the river banks and see if they could find a way across. Four miles from the city, a scuttled ferry boat was quickly discovered and local villagers were already busy trying to repair it. Closer to hand was an even more exciting discovery. An intelligence officer, Colonel Waters, who was actually attached to the Portuguese army, had found a local barber who had crossed the river in his small skiff with news that four wine barges had been left unguarded on the northern shore. With the help of the barber and some local villagers, waters crossed the river and in a dangerous operation that could have ended in discovery and death, they managed to bring all of the boats safely to the south bank. Wellesley saw his opportunity. It was risky, but the French were clearly complacent and not expecting an immediate attack. He at once ordered Major General John Murray to take two battalions from his King's German Legion Brigade, as well as two squadrons of the 14th Light Dragoons along the river and to cross on the ferry at Barca da Vintas. Meanwhile, Wellesley hurried down to the riverbank below his headquarters at the convent of Cerro do Pilar and told Hill's brigade to cross. There was an abandoned seminary on top of the cliff on the north bank, and if they could get enough men across quickly, then this would give them a defensible foothold. To give the men extra protection he ordered three batteries, around 18 or 20 guns, to be placed on the south bank by his headquarters where they could command the vicinity of the seminary and offer a decent level of fire support in the event of a strong French counter-attack. I'm going to put maps up on screen on the YouTube version so if you're listening you might want to look at the YouTube version to just see the maps. It was around half past 10 in the morning when the first boat, packed with an officer and 25 men of the buffs, 3rd Regiment of Foot, quickly crossed the 500-meter board river, scrambled at the steep north bank. Out of breath, they piled into the abandoned seminary, closed the gates and began to fortify it by piling earth behind the walls. Wellesley wasn't a nervous man, but his heart must have been in his mouth as he watched the small boats begin to ferry the men over in small groups. If the French had been vigilant, they could easily have wiped out the British force. But they weren't. Salt himself was still in bed after a late night, and his staff were taking a leisurely breakfast. Eventually, General Foy spotted the Redcoats on the river, but it took time for him to organise his men. And By the time they were ready to advance, it was half past eleven, and there were already at least 600 British troops on the north bank in their very defensible position. The first French gun to arrive on the scene was immediately struck with incredibly accurate counter-battery fire from the south bank. A shrapnel shell putting it out of action and killing all of the gunners. The French infantry attacks were then easily repulsed as more and more British regiments began to cross the river. Soon the open ground in front of the seminary was littered with dead and wounded Frenchmen. Salt. Desperate to dislodge the British, then withdrew Raynaud's brigade from the riverbank in the neighbourhood of the Broken Bridge, i.e. sort of the town centre of Porto, and sent them towards the seminary. But this was a mistake. The moment that the north bank was left unguarded, the local Portuguese civilians left their homes and began to take their boats across the river to assist the waiting redcoats. I haven't been able to find too many memoirs that cover this crossing, but Sergeant Good of the Third Foot Guards later recalled, the brigade of guards crossed the Douro from Villanova with General Sherbrooke in boats timely procured and forming on the quay of Oporto, loaded and advanced up the town. But the devil of Gaul would wait for us. They were all out except for some few dead and wounded lying in the streets at the upper end of the city. Indeed, they went away in such a hurry that they left the streets blocked up with artillery, ammunition, wagons, etc. Some of these had broken down, and the horses of others had been shot. We pursued the fugitives through the town, but they would not stop for us. However, we should soon have got up to them had we not been ordered to halt, so that we could not get one shot at them. The brigade which crossed the river first had a good deal to do, and indeed were the only part of the army, except for the dragoons and the artillery, that were engaged. They killed a vast number of the enemy, and prisoners came in by the dozen. He's talking about Hill's brigade. Although we had marched over 20 miles on a difficult road, yet now we did not feel the want of rest. Indeed, our only anxiety was to push forward. Whilst we remained on the road waiting for orders, we were inspired, if inspiration was necessary, by the passing of the 14th Light Dragoons by us at full speed, all eager for combat and waving in their hands handkerchiefs which had been thrown to them by the females of the town. Indeed, the same compliment was paid to us too, for we went through the town amidst shouts of VIVA! A shower of roses and a hail of handkerchiefs. Even the nuns protruded their heads through the railings of the convent to welcome our arrival. Marshal Sult could now see that the battle was lost, and he ordered his troops to fall back. They were closely followed by the exultant redcoats. Lieutenant Leslie with the Twenty-Ninth, takes up the story. We then turned down on our right where the high road enters from Valenza, on which the enemy was retreating to Amarante. Here our leading company, the Grenadiers, began to fire upon them. They made little resistance, the he means, and made off in haste and confusion, abandoning a brigade of artillery and some ammunition wagons and many were killed and wounded by our fire. We left sentries to protect the wounded as the Portuguese mob was threatening to kill them. On getting clear of the town, we turned to our left into an open space enclosed with walls, in passing which the enemy, who occupied a rocky height on our right, opened a smart fire upon us. We did not stop to return it, but pushed on, gained an opening and immediately attacked the enemy, whom, after a smart skirmish, we drove from the heights. This was their last stand. We now had a splendid view of their whole army in full retreat. We reformed and rushed down after them. They made no fight. Every man seemed running for his life, throwing away their knapsacks and arms, so that we had only the trouble of making many prisoners. They were all begging for quarter and surrendering with great good humour. Remember the King's German Legion units that had crossed the river by the ferry at Davintas a little bit earlier? Well, now they entered the battle just in time to see the battered and disheartened French stream past them. Their commander, General Sir John Murray, should have attacked, but instead he overestimated the enemy's strength and allowed them to pass by unhindered. General Charles Stuart then came along to find Murray, And when he arrived he saw an opportunity and ordered a squadron of the 14th to follow him in a charge against the French rearguard. A brutal melee followed that saw General Foy wounded and General Delaborde briefly taken prisoner. Nearly a third of the attacking cavalrymen though were killed or wounded. It was a brutal fight. The best account of this charge I've been able to find is from the diary of a cavalryman named Peter Hawker. He said After going at full speed, enveloped in a cloud of dust for nearly two miles, we cleared our infantry and that of the French appeared. A strong body was drawn up in close column, with bayonets ready to receive us on their front. On each side of the road was a stone wall, bordered outwardly with trees. On our left, in particular numbers, the French were posted with their pieces resting on the wall, which flanked the road, ready to give us a running fire as we passed. This could not but be effectual, as our men, in threes, were close to the muzzles of their muskets and barely out of the reach of a coup de sabre. In a few seconds the ground was covered with our men and horses. Notwithstanding this, we penetrated the battalion in the road, the men of which, relying on their bayonets, did not give way till we were close upon them. Then they fled in confusion. For some time the contest was kept up hand to hand. After many efforts, we succeeded in cutting off 300 of of them, of whom most were secured as prisoners. But our loss was very considerable. Of 52 men in the leading troop, 10 were killed and 11 severely wounded. And so, the campaign in northern Portugal was now as good as over. Wellesley had achieved his objectives in less than two weeks, cementing his position and proving once again what an incredibly effective commander he was. No major battle had been fought, but Salt's army had been shattered, losing 4,000 men. The survivors were forced to abandon most of their stores and equipment in their haste to escape from the Redcoats. The Allies, on the other hand, had suffered a total of just 300 killed and wounded during this campaign, only 23 of them being killed during the actual capture of Aporto. I mean, that's quite, quite a stunning statistic, really. It was a brilliant campaign. As the historian of the British Army, Sir John Fortescue, concluded, To effect a surprise in broad daylight, to force the passage of a deep and rapid river in the face of a veteran army, with, at the outset, no more than just a single boat, is an action that demands no ordinary measure of insight, nerve and audacity. It has long been customary for the Carpers at Wellesley's fame to reproach him with excessive caution. Yet here, in the first week of a campaign in which the slightest mishap mishap, would have spelled professional ruin and evoked a storm of national indignation, he bearded so formidable an antagonist as Sult with the calm phlegmatic order, well, let the men cross. And now it was time for Wellesley to look eastward and to turn his attention to Marshal Victor and his army of French veterans inside Spain. So guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. It was a short one today, but important. I'm now busy researching for the Battle of Talavera, a murdering battle. But in the meantime, in next month's episode, I'll be talking about British cavalry in the peninsula with the brilliant Marcus Crib. He's the manager of Apsley House, Wellington's old residence. He's an expert on all things Wellington and the peninsula. We'll be galloping at everything, so make sure you subscribe. You don't want to miss it. It's a belter.